Today we have Joel Byers, who is the comedic podcasting legend from Hot Breath. Now, I've got to ask you something. First off, thanks for coming on, Joel. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Now, I have one burning question. Can you say the name of your show for me? The name of the show is Hot Breath. (laughs) Okay, now one thing I noticed about... (laughs) you with your show is I think you knew you had the name because I've never heard you refer to the name of the show without giggling. (laughs) It just kind of appeared to me. I I was a fan of fresh air on NPR and I was just thinking of like a quick hitter name and then hot breath appeared. I don't know what it means, but it's taken off. So I'll, I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you think of, uh, I can't help but think of like open mics and, um, and, microphones that have suffered quite a bit of hot breath uh, and everything else that has yeah. been hot. So I, I could just totally see the connotation. And also, when you say hot breath, well, it doesn't mean anything except warm breath, but you add to it. Mentally, you add to the picture just automatically. Hot breath always seems to persist with an odor or <laughs> a, some sort of pepper that somebody ate. It's it's never a pleasant experience per se, but often funny. Unless they're listening to the podcast, then it's very pleasant. Ding 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 ding. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> definitely throw the pitches in there now. Um, I understand both your parents are teachers. Yes. Yep. I had my mom is still she does more teacher training now, but she was always a teacher from middle school and high school, and also my stepdad was a teacher, a coach, and then eventually became a principal. So they were both in the educational field, which has really informed my professional journey. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting. Now, are you, I imagine that, yes, you are teaching because yet you love to teach, et cetera. But there has to be an ancillary benefit too, at least in the terms of networking. Are you, in fact, a networker as well as a teacher? Absolutely. I have I have gotten so many opportunities just from my students, whether it be someone who's in the public speaking world that was taking the class to help with their public speaking. And then they're like, hey, we have a holiday party coming up. Would you like to perform? Or, hey, my buddy, this this actually happened. He's like, hey, my buddy's in this biker gang and they're having a get together. It's like their annual get together. He's like, would you like to come do 20 minutes of comedy? And I was like, well, it's a paid gig. So, yes. <laughs> you had to be armed. <laughs> yeah, I I didn't know what I was getting into, and I'm glad because by the time I got there, I was like, "What did I get myself into?" But I survived. I survived. Well, what's it? Uh, you know, the uh, stereotypical biker ganger is one of the Vietnam vet loving biker gangs that are. They were called uh, the Regulators. This was a hip hop biker gang, oh, and okay. uh, it was it was alarming at first, but they accepted me. But as I was walking up, some I did hear someone yell, who is this white boy? <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, let me just get in and get out. But it all went well, actually. It was a really fun show. Do you find in an awkward crowd, and I, I want to address these different things, because obviously you're going to take gigs, like you just said, wherever you can get them. And 
I'm sure it's not always like animal. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, animal, a uh, blues brothers. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure you have uncomfortable gigs. What is your best way to handle it? Is it to just be wide open and be like, well, this is awkward. Yeah. A good technique is to just address the obvious. If, if something isn't working, you can address, Oh, well that didn't work. Or, well, this doesn't, this didn't go according to plan or, I'm glad I got paid ahead of time or something like that. You know, <laughs> most like I haven't really had any like paid gigs that just went completely sideways, but a lot of like the open mics and just the free showcases you do, you know, I got booed at a place called taboo. I should have known by the name of the place that it was taboo. It had the word boo in it. I ended up getting booed. And how I handled that is, <laughs> is I just booed the audience back. So I just, they booed, uh, no, they, they just kept booing, <laughs> didn't, uh, but the host found it funny. He's like, man, I've never seen a comedian boo the audience back. Tell him to check out Bill Burr in Philadelphia. Oh, that's epic. That's a <laughs> epic comedian survival story right there. Yeah. Speaking of that, do you have comebacks or, or lines tucked in your pocket for when things go wrong or a joke goes flat, things like that. A lot of, a lot of what I do is reacting in the moment. I know, I know comedians who will like prepare lines in case something does miss. I think the only go-to one I have, if someone's like drunk and disruptive, I'll say like, Oh, keep drinking, keep drinking. If you need to ride home, I do have a trunk. <laughs> <laughs> that use that gets a laugh and brings the attention back to the stage. Usually. But uh, most of the time, it's just reacting and connecting with whatever the disturbance is and like almost addressing it in real time. And that seems to help kind of us as a collective group, which is what a stand up comedy show is. You're like a collective group. Addressing what's happening in the group can really help for us all to remain on the same page. That's true. You are you're almost like three entities in a way. Hmm. Tell my wife how lucky she is. Uh, yes, oh. not just one. I'm three entities, honey. She's listening in the other room. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I was trying to be funny. I forced it. I'm sorry. Oh, hey, <sighs> no okay, everybody. This is his material. <laughs> but um, on that bombing. Now, mm-hmm. I have a weird theory that you have to be slightly masochistic to be a comedian. But would you consider bombing to be important? You learn more from bombing than you do like succeeding on stage. You learn even watching someone bomb, you learn. But even when you bomb, it teaches you what not to do. And no one is immune to bombing. As you just heard from my last joke, I said how that (laughs) bombed. But just a few years ago, like Dave Chappelle had gotten booed on stage. So I like on my podcast, I've interviewed like almost 200 comics and they could be 30 years in. They could be three years in. No one is immune to bombing. Everyone goes through this and it is a necessary evil. And it also will, it also in a sense weeds out the weak that you do have to be somewhat of a masochist to be a comedian that's willing to go up on stage every night and face failure until you figure out how to make it succeed. So I, I don't look forward to the bombs, but I know when I do bomb that there's a good lesson to learn from it. I was thinking as an analogy, and this is why I brought it up is I'm a runner, not at the moment, I'm out of shape, but 
you have to be kind of stupid because when you're running, every once in a while, the runs are just perfect. Everything flows. It feels really good. But the truth is that most runs suck. Hmm. So you might just run one day and it just feels so freaking good. Everything's just awesome. You're on top of the world. You feel like Rocky and Forrest Gump combined. Then the next day, it just sucks. You you feel wooden, kind of legs are rubbery, just everything is off. But then afterwards, you feel good because you piled through it. Now, I have a weird theory that that is what it takes to be a junkie. If every run felt good, it would, you'd get bored of it after a while. Is it that way in comedy? If If you always killed and you never bombed or you never, you know, were knocked back on your heels, wouldn't you start to get stale? Yeah, there's definitely something to that. And really, as a comedian, we're all just chasing that high of like, you'll have a couple shows that maybe go okay, and then you have like a a better one, and then you have a bad one, and you just stay in the middle. But there's these shows we'll have that like, everything worked, you're in the zone, every breath you're taking is just working, you're just completely locked in. And those are the shows that like keep you coming back for more. Where it's like, I know this worked six months ago. It's it's gotta work again sometime. And you're we're constantly just chasing that high. It really is. And several comedians do use the analogy that like, I mean, we're addicted to this. We're like addicted to the laugh. And there's sometimes you're in the zone and everything's working. Like with running, like every foot stroke is just right in rhythm. Same thing with the stage. You and the audience are one. And then for the next six months, a year. You're searching for that again, and then you find it again. You're like, I knew it. It was there the whole time. So you're sometimes like a conductor where you're like, laugh from the corner to this side. And it's just going in waves. You're so dialed in and in, in control. Oh, it's it's magical. When it when it, you're firing on all cylinders, it, it's like a spiritual experience. I can't even describe it to anyone who hasn't like been on stage like that. It's just one of a kind. Now, how long did it take before you had that experience? The first time I had that experience, well, really early, early on, maybe, um, maybe about six months in, I did a show, my jokes were terrible, but I did a show where literally like every line worked, everything I said got a laugh and I was like, yeah, this is it. And then it was like probably another two years where I did, I did a show at a church in front of 1800 people and everything worked there. And I'm like 1800 people. When you get that many people laughing, like it's just a wave of energy that crashes on you. And I'll still get goosebumps thinking about that experience because that was the first one where I was thinking bigger than just like open mic level where I'm like, oh, this is what's possible. And it kind of opens your mind to that growth mindset and really to have bigger expectations for yourself and also for bigger expectations for where you want to end up. So that one, 1800 people, I'm, Ooh, that's, that's still powerful. I mean, yeah, it's unforgettable. I mean, and they're with you. I can only imagine what it feel like against you. Oh my gosh. That's a good point. I'm glad. It happened. <laughs> yeah. You'd go viral. That would be my viral moment. <laughs> on that um did you suck to start at the beginning yeah oh yes i mean my first time was sufficient you know 
it was probably like 12 people. Six of those were the staff at the club. And I didn't like kill, but people were politely smiling. So it was enough to keep me going. But just like any skill you learn, you're you're going to suck when you start. And comedy, you can look at it as a language. So mm. as we learn a language, you know, you kind of you make grunts at first and you kind of goo goo gaga and then you start to put a few words together until you start to speak fluently same thing with stand-up it's just years of being on stage and getting that submersion to learn the language so at first yeah you don't you don't even know what you're doing you're just guessing you're just grasping at straws every show but those those few shows where it does click for some reason that's just that's just comedy keeping you keeping you in the game just when you think you're out she pulls you right back in with a good show (laughs) i hear you (laughs) i'm full of analogies here i'm kind of wondering if it is in fact better to suck to start and and the reason why i'm saying is there have been some studies that lifetime gamble gambling addicts the first time out that they gambled they won and they won big Mm. and then they spend their whole lives trying to chase this thing or going down, I kind of wonder if you come out the gate and your first open mic, everybody's just dying, and you're like, "Wow, hey, look at me!" And then, and then you suck. Mm-hmm. That would be disheartening. It's almost—is it better? Do you think to be like, okay, well, I got a couple smile, and having to work for every single laugh out of every single person, so you're you know paying your dues. Yeah, I think it definitely helps you appreciate it more when it is just kind of that gradual build. You know, you're you're taking the stairs, if you will. And a lot of people, yeah, they'll I mean, I've had students who they graduate and they're at the grad show and like everything works because we've been working collectively on putting this set together and it's a supportive audience. And they're mm-hmm. like, yeah, I'm going to do stand up. And then they go to an open mic and they're like, wait, where are my friends and why aren't they laughing? I thought this thought this worked everywhere. And then they see the reality of comedy, which is just repetition on stage. But I've had, like, I connect with a lot of comics just through my podcast. They always reach out with questions. And I've had some, like, six months in, everything's going great. And they're like, man, I'm ready to start going on tour. And I'm like, all right, well, well, let's calm down. And then, like, the next three months, they do nothing but bomb. And they're like, what happened, Joel? I was just like, comedy happened. (laughs) <laughs> that's what happened comedy and tragedy <laughs> you made me think of something aren't open mics actually harder in some ways because one you're taking somebody else's time in their mind two they're very competitive i'm sure there's a lot of passive aggressive type competition in there and three they know the craft so you've really got to do something different for them to even find it funny because your audiences all want to be comedians Yeah. And a lot of the open mics, if there is an audience, sometimes it's an unexpected audience. Like you'll be at a pub on a Tuesday at 10. It's people in there just drinking on a Tuesday night and all of a sudden a comedy show pops up and then we're just intruding on their conversation. All right, be quiet. It's time for comedy that you didn't know was happening. So you have to coerce them into engaging with you and laughing with you. So Open mics are definitely harder, but it's it's a necessary evil in this game. Like it's it's part of the reps, it's part of the process. And I'll here in Atlanta, you know, there's a great comedy scene, and I'll see twenty year comedy vets still coming out to open mics because that's just part of how you develop material. You can't develop it in front of your Furbies. 
You got to develop well, in an audience. And that's something that just tangentially, I mean, listening to Joe Rogan, he's out there, I think four or five nights a week. Yep. And I mean, the guy could print money. He has so much money, so much power. And I think Bill Burr's out there every night and Ron White has been out there every night. And I'm, you know, I kind of am like, God, what it must be like to go in the comedy store every day there because oh. legends going in and out continuously. It's unbelievable. But, um, even that it seems like the top, 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 top people are obsessive about writing and working and working and working and going in front of the open mic crowd. We're addicted. <laughs> it really is an addiction. Like we're, we're addicted to this. And I think it was Don Rickles that said like comedians don't retire. They die. <laughs> it's like, it's just the reality of it. Once the comedy bug gets you, uh, you're in for life. A lot of them live pretty old too, though. So that may not be a bad thing. Yeah. 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 I know Atlanta has a, a pretty strong scene coming up. But you're not in New York. You're not in L.A. Is Atlanta on an equal level as those or no? No, not an equal level. But Atlanta, one, it's a hotbed for film production, which is nice. And there's there's an overall great culture here in Atlanta. And Atlanta's a great place to get good at comedy. You can perform every single night of the week multiple times. And there's a lot of comedy fans here, too. So there is the open mics, like we've mentioned. But there's also a lot of great book showcases and we have four comedy clubs here as well that you can get work and get in front of comedy audiences. So it's by no means in New York or LA, but with how the system is set up now, you don't really need to move to those places unless you just want to. Like when I started, my goal is to build it and they will come. So just build myself here in Atlanta and I have visited New York and I have visited L.A. and, you know, done my networking and met my people. And I'll visit back just to I call it watering the plants, you know, just <laughs> go back, you know, annually and make sure all the ducks are in a row. But I I love being in Atlanta. It helps me to get better at comedy faster. I it's the world's busiest airport, so it's easy to travel in and out of. And I've a lot of people come here. So. Not only is just doing comedy great for networking, doing the podcast has been great for networking as well. And I don't really have any complaints or reason to move until like I'll move when L.A. moves me out there, you know? Right. Well, I wouldn't want to live in L.A. Yeah. I mean, if it's for a job, you know, like if, if someone's paying me to go out there and work, then I'm all there. But I'm not going to move out there just to try to figure it out, you know? Well, and I'm wondering, I think your fa your family is you're from Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So you probably keep a place in Atlanta either way, even if you were working out in LA. Yeah. Cause usually how that works is they'll, they'll uh, fly you out and put you up during the terms of uh, the production or whatnot. And then you can just come back. I've had several friends that have done TV shows and they just get flown out. They live in an apartment provided by the studio. And then when the production's done, they just fly back and they're back in Atlanta. Yeah. I wanted to address the, your career arc and I don't know if it's typical or unique to you I'm, I'm guessing everybody's unique in a way but at what point did you have to quit the extra jobs i i forget what they call it um there's a term for the jobs that aren't really your life it's just the things to pay the bills of course you've listed a few that you've done like enterprise rent-a-car and mm. you have some others 
Yeah, dishwashing, been a hotel mini bar attendant, like all dream jobs if you hate money. And <laughs> what it what it really came down to, I, I think it was about six or seven years in when I had saved up a bit of a nest egg and I was living in the hood of Atlanta in a studio apartment, you know, really just just trying to save up money so then I can pursue comedy full time and just it just came to a point where I was like, okay, the worlds are starting to kind of conflict a little bit. So it's maybe time to make a move. So I sat down and I just listed all the pros and cons of me going full-time comedy. And it's like, here's best case scenario. Here's worst case scenario. Am I willing to live with the worst case scenario? And I was like, yeah. And the pros far outweighed the cons. So as soon as I sat down, and took the time to find that clarity in the decision, it was a no-brainer. Just like doing comedy, as soon as I decided to start pursuing it, it was a no-brainer. And then now, as I want to be a professional, I took the time to look into it and be like, yeah, this is worth the risk. And it's been, I mean, it's, it's, I'm not saying it's easy, you know, because if you want to pursue comedy as a full-time profession, congratulations, you just booked yourself two jobs. The show and the business. The show is a, its own job where you have to perform, you have to write, you have to refine, you have to review your sets. And then the business, you have to make money. So it's it's two job, two full-time jobs, but it's it's the most rewarding profession I could ever imagine. Yeah, it, you're essentially an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like you followed the entrepreneurial path, which is... You do a side hustle and keep your day job until your day job is interfering with the side hustle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Side hustle grows enough. And then that's when you have to make that choice. And it might be thin for a while. Now, you're married too, right? I am now. When I made the, the switch to full time, I was not married yet. I was still just living in that studio apartment. Yeah. Okay. That, I'm thinking sometimes having um, a partner can help especially with things like uh, healthcare benefits. Like if she has a job that does offer benefits. Yeah. Oh yeah. They can't. Yeah. The the listeners can't see me, but I'm smiling because I have a good dentist (laughs) for sure. That's a great benefit. And that's something that I always think gets overlooked by a lot of people is Mm -hmm. um, you'll be like, well, how is it they manage to just drop everything and, and eat crackers, you know, whatever, and then just suddenly be successful. It's like, well, they did have a spouse. Yeah, and even beyond, like, quote, like, health benefits or whatnot, just having that support system and someone that believes in you, and I feel so fortunate that I've heard stories of, and this is anyone, like, maybe their parents say, eh, maybe you shouldn't, or their spouse is like, you're still doing that. Like, mm. I feel very fortunate that, I've had a good support system throughout my entire journey. There hasn't really been any naysayers that are really like, are you sure? Joel's gone crazy. You know, like my wife is so supportive and she's always willing to bounce ideas off on what I'm working on next professionally in terms of like maybe my next business move. Um, I also bounce material off of her as well, but she doesn't laugh at anything I say. So (laughs) it's not a really good sounding board there. It's 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 always good to have that teammate though as well. It's very motivating. That's awesome, and you've got to give her shout outs from time to time. 
I shout her out at the end of all of my episodes. Like she, she made the theme song for my podcast. Oh. And then the first couple, I at the end of the episodes, I would thank her. I'd be like, and thank you. At the time, it was thank you to my girlfriend, uh, <laughs> Aaron, for making this song. And now, uh, four years later, I'm still thanking her at the end of every episode. Now you're able to say, hey, I do comedy as a day job. And I specifically pick I do comedy as a day job because I feel like you're not just doing things on stage. You're also teaching. Mm-hmm. You run like a game show thing. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give us a description of how to put together, if you will, a career in comedy that's not only one thing or another? Well, it's not enough to be one thing anymore in general. And especially in comedy, it's like you can be really funny on stage, but what else? As soon as someone discovers you on stage, like, okay, what else do you do? Like, do you have a podcast? Do you have a blog? Like, do you, you always have to have something else. So it's following your strengths and also following your passions. And the classes came along that, you know, I grew up in a house of educators and then my podcast is very educational. So I've always, and I like my comedy to be educational as well. So it it was a natural fit that this is a strength and a passion of mine. And people were asking me about doing classes. So I was like, well, if, if people want them, then yeah. So it started out as classes, but it has since evolved to me doing one-on-one sessions with people either in person or over Skype where it's either helping them with stand up or helping them with a speech coming up. Or if they just want, if they just need like advice, there's like, I don't even know what to do, Joel. It's like, I'll do Skype sessions with people as well as going into companies and doing not only stand up, but I've done improv programs with companies to help with team building and communication. So there's a lot of power and there's a lot of dimensions behind comedy that you may just think, oh, he does stand-up comedy. When's his Netflix special? But there are so many other avenues you can take in comedy that, I, in my opinion, like I think make a bigger impact than just like having a one-hour comedy special. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I, I interviewed Margot Lightman, and she does like the Moth series. Hmm. She, she was a comedian to start, was on Conan and things like that but then shifted over to storytelling and she's made a career. And it sounds like you have a similarity there. She'll go into corporations and teach how to tell a story. And as an example, Steve jobs is one of the best storytellers out there or was mm-hmm. when he was alive. Um, and you don't think that automatically you're like, well, he's showing a product. It's like, no, he is telling a story and he is doing that. And I'm guessing maybe that's a little bit of what you're doing. Yeah. And storytelling, it's it's fascinating you bring that up because I'm in the middle of reading a book right now about like storytelling and how it, it should be infused into your brand. So it's that's good timing. And I'm glad to hear that someone like Margot has like been able to turn that into kind of part of her profession. So, yeah, I'm interested in it, too, because even though I'm doing an interview podcast, I realized that I need story. Mm. to demonstrate points and if i can pull stories from people things like that then it it makes it more interesting there is an arc even in the interview you know i'm every interview i'm learning and i'm assuming the same with you i learn from everything i do like every person i talk to every experience i have 
I'm always looking to learn. I'm I'm almost addicted to learning in a sense that I wherever I'm at, whatever I'm doing, whoever I'm talking to, I want to make sure that it's productive use of time and that I am absorbing something that I can then apply later. Well, you ultimately a comedy nerd. Yeah. Yeah, I was I'm I was a comedy addict, man. If we're gonna get down to it, I need it. I need it. <laughs> Well, I can't help but wonder if you, you know, like I, I taught at uh, University of Arizona Extended U, and I did like 29 different computer courses, programming, things like that. And honestly, I was learning often the night before I was teaching. Mm-hmm. And I learned so much by teaching. I'm wondering if that is the case with you. Like teaching comedy has sharpened your comedic skills and your ability to communicate versus just doing it. Oh my gosh. It's been so beneficial. And maybe I teach selfishly because I learn, I feel like in the class as much as my students do, just watching them and their development and seeing what's working for them and what isn't, what's working for everyone and what's a roadblock for everyone. So as I've been teaching over the past few years, you know, the the curriculum has been honed in and really sharpened to the point to where I've seen what works and what doesn't work. And I've applied that to me as well. And usually it becomes like a universal truth within how you can learn comedy is that there are specific techniques and skills you can apply to your comedy. It's just up to you to use them and really do the work to make them work. Yeah. And I think you've said this before and I've heard it before. Um, I think Mitch Hedberg was your initial influence and, I know like Burt Kreischer and uh, Tom Segura and all of them said that um, they were all Dave Attell clones mm-hmm. in New York. Is that the routine? Is everybody starting out comedy is really an imitation or a cover band of their favorite comedian? It's alarming like how many new comics will sound like their favorite comedians. And even like now, if if I listen to a comic too much, I'll catch myself sounding like them on stage or if I'm working, I've worked with a comic like at a comedy club throughout the weekend. And then like on the Sunday night show, if I watch that headliner all weekend, I'll catch myself kind of sounding like them. You really, you can start to absorb like their song, their rhythm, and it'll just come out organically. Like no one isn't, most people aren't intentionally trying to sound like someone, but if I can see a comedian and I can be like, oh, they're watching too much Bill Burr, they sound just like Bill Burr. So <laughs> it's really crucial to record your own sets and listen to yourself. And that's really how you develop your own voice. That's very interesting, though. I, I imagine even the more famous comedians, you can say, see their pedigree. Oh, yeah. That's true. Yeah. Some more than others, but you really are like a product of your environment and comedy. You know, we just, especially comedians, we just are always like aware and trying to absorb everything. And that can be to a detriment and to a benefit. I've, I've accidentally recited another comics joke, not even realizing it. I thought I came up with it. And then a comic came up to me after a show and was like, yo, you know, that so-and-so's joke. And I was like, whoa, it is. And as soon as they said it, I remembered it. But I know several of my friends who have done a joke they thought was theirs. And then they find out later, they're like, oh, yeah, I just subconsciously like adapted that to my set. It's it's something you have to be mindful of, but not embarrassed about. Everyone, everyone does that. Well, and there's also, I, I forget what it's like, parallel thought or, or whatever, mm-hmm. where you have 
some event like um, Stormy Daniels and Trump, for example, you know that there are a dozen jokes that 50 people did at the same time because some things just write themselves. Yeah. And we're all drawing from the same world at the end of the day. So it's like if you have a dating app joke, it's like, how can you make it uniquely yours? You don't do something generic about Tinder. Take us to a personal experience you had with Tinder and what happened that I always put my jokes through like a filter of like, okay, could someone else say this joke and it still be funny? I, so <laughs> if it, if someone else could say it and it still works just as well, then I know I don't want to do that joke anymore because I really want to, what I have found, and this is what I challenge my students to do. And this took me years to discover, but the more personal, the more universal, so the more personal your material is, the more you're going to connect with that audience. There's like an inverse relationship where I'm telling them something that only I would connect with. It actually resonates with the audience more because it is so personal that it makes it memorable as opposed to we've all seen a comedian where we're like, wow, they were funny, but you don't remember anything they said. It was just funny. So to make that memorable material, it has to be personal. Wow. You may have just answered a question that I had inadvertently. Is that in essence what hack material is? Is a joke that anyone could spit out and, and yeah, people laugh, but it's not personal. It's not meaningful. I mean, hack is like low hanging fruit. So, I mean, in my opinion, like hack would be like a stormy Daniels, Donald Trump joke. It's, it's just like lazy and it's obvious. You know I mean? That's, that's more how I look at, the quote like hack of comedy it's more just like lazy and you just kind of go with the norm and go what's like just easily accessible and you're not challenging yourself and then on the opposite end when you say deeply personal or something so unique to yourself what pops in my mind every time is uh burt kreischer and the machine mm -hmm. i cannot picture anybody else on the planet talking about robbing a train with the Russians. <laughs> just, I mean, yeah. And, and with his ridiculous laugh. Yes. It, it is. He is a unique, he's like a character and a storyteller at the same time. And what's great about Bert is like that story he's now famous for. And he went viral, which that story ended up, he posted it on Facebook and it ended up blowing up his career. But he talks about that story took him legitimately like four years to develop into like a hilarious bit. So a lot of people just see the end product and they're like, oh, that's comedy. All you have to do is go up there and talk and it's funny. No, something like that story took him a professional comic, took him four years to develop into what it is now. So the work that goes into comedy, I mean. People don't really understand unless they try it, but it's it's a true piece of art, what he's created with that story, even if it is on the surface, oh, this drunk college kid robs a train in Russia and like all this craziness ensues. And they're like, it's funny because his shirt's off. No, it's funny because it wasn't funny for four years and then he figured it out. Oh, yeah. And that leads us into another thing. Oh, by the way, people think podcasting is easy, too. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no. no, 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 no. Just plug in a microphone and talk. I mean, I talk all the time. I talk to my wife. Hell. 
Sometimes I talk too much. It's a great analogy. Seriously, it's 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 like that magic trick. Oh, they're just talking, just like in podcasting, and just like in stand up. Oh, they're just talking. All right, you try it, and then they're like, oh. Never mind. Yeah, what's your next question? What's your next question? Yeah. Did you research? Oh, his mom died two weeks ago. Did you pay attention? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Does that happen to you? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, um, I pride myself on, I try to research people as much as I can, mm-hmm. and I listen to elements that they drop and people ignore. And I've, I've used this one a bunch of times, but I think it fits with you. I interviewed uh, James Fallon, and uh, James Fallon is not Jimmy Fallon. He's uh, Professor James Fallon, and he does brain scans of people, and he did his own brain scan. It turned out he has a psychopathic brain. Huh. He's a neurologist. But where it got interesting is he was doing an interview, and he had mentioned that George Carlin was a family friend, and then they kept on going. I'm like, what? What? George Carlin's a family? What? Right. What? And so then when I interviewed him, I dialed right into that and he had a delightful talk about how he would go watch Carlin and um, spy his audience and how they're reacting to material. And this is gold. So that's a, that's a lot of what I do is I I try to listen to what you put down or you say somewhere else and then gets overlooked. Oh, I, I'm almost like a private investigator with my guests. Like I go deep on my guests to the point I've had some be like, yo, are you the feds? They're like, how do you, how do you know all this about me? Like, I, I just want people to know, like when they listen to hot breath, they're going to get a well-researched interview and they're going to learn things about my guests that they can't hear anywhere else. And that was something I did from the beginning. And like, how can I stand out? There's so many podcasts. How can I stand out? Well, other comedians have a podcast, but they're not doing well-researched interviews. The audio might not always be quality. I'm going to make sure, even if I'm unknown at the moment, I'm going to make sure that I have a professional-grade podcast for when it does start to get traction, people are going to want to share it because it's professional-grade. Right. You, I have had it happen countless times, and I love talking shop. I don't care. That's <laughs> that. But um, I've had it count countless times oh you know that and when you do it and especially if you can do it early they're engaged Mm -hmm. now suddenly we're having a conversation because i have interviewed people who have 500 interviews and it's a pride point to have somebody who has done 500 interviews saying you didn't ask a single question i've ever heard yeah and it also will help you to get referrals from them as well. If they enjoyed your show, they're more willing to refer a friend as well that you may not have had access to before. Definitely. Now, don't expect them to share it because especially after the more are with you, they never share. That is so inside <laughs> podcasting right there. We're like, they don't know the struggle. And then you're like, they won't share it. You're like, that is the truth right there. Yo, let me know when it drops. I'll be sure to retweet it. You're like, they can't even hit uh, the retweet button. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. And I'm sure you found it, too. The bigger the name, the less likely. It's the ones who are kind of in the middle or on the cusp or they're hustling like you are right now. Yeah. They will retreat the hell out of it. And by the way, their episode will do better than the big name that you thought was going to take you to the next level. You know, what's great about that. And I, that's what I love about like the democracy of the internet is like, 
you know, I've, I've interviewed people like Bo Burnham and I was like, oh, this is the one that's going to take me to the next level. His has less listens than like a, like a, a local show producer that gives really good insight into how to produce a show, how to approach a venue. Like that episode has more listens than a Bo Burnham. So what I learned in that lesson is like, it's more about the content than the guest. And it's like, what, what is the substance of that interview? And that is really what has become the barometer for how well my episodes do is what is the quality level of the content that people are engaging with. And that's become just kind of like my North star for all my episodes. Now is like, Oh, let me make sure this is as in depth and as engaging as possible and not just, Oh, you released a movie. Very cool. You know, yawn. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Makes a lot of sense though, especially if you are able to really address something that's a specific need or pain point. Mm -hmm. Yes. They're going to listen, but they're also going to, share it with a friend when they're talking to a friend. Oh, this podcast episode I heard really did a great job covering that particular subject. Yep. And I think that's why it has legs is because they wind up going, uh, and they might even listen to it a couple of times. Oh, I've had people reach out several. That's my favorite part about the podcast is just, I, I had someone reach out from Ireland like two weeks ago saying, the podcast inspired him to start doing stand-up comedy. Like those are the kind of things. And they're like, I listened to this episode 10 times over the past like month. It's just helped me so much. It gets me psyched up before a show. Like that's what keeps you going even more than like your listener numbers is when a listener engages with you. And is like, this personally impacted me. Thank you. It's, it's the, it's the most rewarding part of it. Oh, hell yeah. It's, more significant than downloads because yeah. you're actually touching a person mm-hmm. and you there's a communication and yeah, that's unbelievable. Yeah. On that note, what episode are you most proud of? Ooh. Um, honestly, the Bo Burnham one was a big milestone because he was the first guest that actually reached out to me to be on. So he was releasing his movie at the time, eighth grade, and his his management, his promotional management people reached out like, hey, we've we've heard about your podcast. Bo's going to be in Atlanta. Would you be interested in having him on the show to discuss the movie? And I was just like, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, he's like he's like the new Steve Martin. So, of course, I'll have him on. So that one was like a big barometer, big kind of new mark for the show that, okay, we're on to something. If people like him are now reaching out to be on it, that we're on the right track. So that really hit me kind of like the church stand-up show hit me in that growth mindset of like what's possible. That really mm-hmm. kicked my vision for the podcast in a new gear, knowing that people on like Bo Burnham's level know it exists. And it was just a nice, um, an affirmation, if you will. So I would say that one was the, uh, Probably the biggest. And then also my first live podcast. I was super proud of just, it was my hundredth episode and I wanted to do something special. So we did our first live podcast with my first guest ever, Rob Hayes, who the first time I interviewed him, he had just, he had done last comic standing and open up for Dave Chappelle. But since that up to our hundredth, you know, he had done like Jimmy Fallon. He had written on TV shows. He was now living in New York. So 
it was cool to not only like refresh with him, but also mm. to do a live podcast and realize, oh, people actually care. People will show up and they will just sit there and listen and be entertained. Like it, it expanded the format for me. That's so cool too when you can check in with somebody on their path to start them. Where you're like, okay, I'm here. He's playing in small clubs. Now he's playing larger clubs, and and I'm checking back because you're teaching and you're kind of telling people, hey, here here's the way to go about it to get a career. And when you have people on, you're like, okay, well, look, they were right here. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's headlining, but it's a tiny club. Now we're headlining everywhere, and they're on the late night. Mm-hmm. Now, on that, who is your white whale? Jerry Seinfeld. He is. He's like my blue sky. If I could interview anyone, I mean, of course, people like Joe Rogan are on there, Dave Chappelle, Amy Schumer, Whitney Cummings. But there's something about. Seinfeld, and now that I'm talking about it, actually Steve Martin. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, gonna I'm gonna edit it. I'm editing it right now. My white whale is now Steve Martin. I'm sorry, Jerry Seinfeld was top of mind because I was just uh, watching a Comedians in Cars trailer. So Steve Martin, he's he's my favorite comedian. He's not only a virtuoso in comedy, but he can also play the banjo. He was a writer, director. He he's one of those guys who could he can just do anything. So. Steve Martin is the white whale and we will get him. <clears throat> you have to kidnap him. Well, he says one line that I'm sure you've probably used a lot, but I really enjoy it. And that is the people come and ask me how to do this, how to do that, but they never come and ask me, how do I get good? <laughs> Everyone wants a way around the work. Everyone wants like the the life hack or the shortcut or the secret, but the secret is you've got to do the work. Even you know people will take my class and they think they're gonna they're gonna graduate with an understanding of comedy, their sense of humor, and how they can write funny and whatever they're trying to do, and just have a funnier perspective on the world. But mm-hmm. if you want to be a professional, you need to keep doing it keep sharpening that sword keep getting on stage but everyone people that reach out to me for comedy advice are like hey i want to i want to start going on a tour i've been doing this six months what what, what's my next step and i'm like well perform for six more years (laughs) get funny and then worry about it like i didn't even until i went full-time like I didn't even worry about like the business. I didn't worry about how am I going to brand myself? What's my story? I was like, let me get as good as possible at comedy first. And I'm still, I mean, like we said, comedians don't retire. They die. It is a lifelong pursuit. Comedians at every level are always still getting better. But I didn't even try to go pro until I thought I had a product that was professional, the product that is worth selling. So my number one advice for comics is just live on stage until you're undeniably funny and then worry about what's my logo or who's my brand going to be like, worry all about that later. Get funny first. Actually, I just said something ironic. Your white whale is the one who puts a lie to the comedians not retiring. Oh, he did retire from stand up. That's right. <laughs> 
He did. That's funny. He, I mean, he blazed. You got to think Steve Martin was the first comic to, he was the first comic to be selling out like arenas. Like mm-hmm. it was unheard of the level of stardom he had. So I would imagine it was overwhelming, but I have heard he, he's, he's done a few shows since then. Like he, he's kind of dipping his toe back in a little bit, but you know, in the meantime, he was only, you know, creating movies and, becoming this amazing banjo player and things but you're right that's a good point eric <laughs> you have to see a ton of the uh, dunning kruger effect in comedy what is that okay dunning kruger <laughs> is uh, huh what'd you say uh, eric hold on let me pull out my google <laughs> there you go dunning kruger is essentially the more you learn you the more you realize how little you know mm. it was two scientists and they studied People who are new to an industry that as they learn, they think they know everything about it. And then the people who have been doing it for a long time that are extremely high level professionals, they think they know a whole lot less than they actually do. So there's actually a curve in that. And that's the uh, Dunning-Kruger effect. And I was just thinking that comedy has to be that way, too, where early on, especially probably in the first few years, comedians think they know a whole lot more than they do. Mm-hmm. And then the 20-year veterans are saying, geez, I'm just barely getting a handle on some of this stuff. And they obviously are so steeped in knowledge. I've yeah, I've interviewed like 20-year comedy vets, and they'll they'll say, you know, I think I'm I think I'm starting to get the hang of this. Like, not I've mastered it. 20 years in, they're like, you know, I think I'm starting to get a handle on this comedy thing a little bit. Or I figured out this one aspect of it. It you learn from every experience on stage, of course. But it, it really is a lifelong pursuit. That's what keeps people continuing. Multimillionaires are still like, ah, got to go to the club tonight. Got to gotta do the, the open mic. You know, got to gotta keep learning, getting better. What would be your piece of advice for somebody who wants to be a comedian, but they do not live in a major metro market? Would it be move or try to build their own scene? I would recommend that aspiring comedian to listen to the hot breath podcast first off, (laughs) but um, in all reality, yeah, I would recommend starting your own show. So if you want to, if you want to do comedy, like go to a local restaurant or bar or venue that maybe does karaoke or they do music or trivia and see if they'd be interested in a comedy night and just start, start from there. And if it's something you're wanting to take seriously and you're like, Hey, I'm really enjoying this. I wish I had more opportunities. Look for other towns in your vicinity. Maybe there's a town two hours away that does a a comedy showcase or whatnot and reach out to them. See if you now, then you're, you're testing the waters even more. Okay. I'm willing to drive two hours for a 10 minute set. You're willing to make the sacrifices that are necessary. So then from there, maybe it's like, Oh, let me move to, you can dive headfirst into a New York or LA and be like, let's do this. Or you can, a lot of people are moving to Atlanta from smaller scenes and actually like, Oh, let me take the leap into Atlanta and start to develop there. So you can kind of do it piece by piece, start out yourself, see if it's something you like, start connecting with other towns that may do a little bit of comedy. And then from there, move to a bigger city and really take a run at it. It's funny, Nate, or can it be taught? Can it be learned? There's techniques that can be learned, kind of like teaching someone how to play guitar. 
there's certain mm-hmm. chords and like technique behind it that anyone can learn, but to what degree is going to depend on, you know, what degree you're willing to work at it. And then also at some degree, you know, there's only one Dave Chappelle at the end of the day, you know, but I think anyone can become a professional if they're willing to do the work. I think anyone can learn the basics and then build on those through repetition on stage and then become a professional. No problem. Yeah. Now, somebody who wants to learn, should they be working in what feels comfortable to them or they should, or should they always be trying to do something that's opposite what is familiar to them? I think starting out, I would, I always challenge people to just get with the personal, which can be uncomfortable at first, but it took Mm -hmm. me years to really start to dive into my personal life and make material out of it. But I've seen the benefit of just audience response, but also the wealth of material I've been able to start developing and finding just because I got personal. So it's uncomfortable at first, but a lot of discomfort comes from fear and that it's just different and new. So the more you do it, the more comfortable it will become. But being on stage in general is uncomfortable. 99% of the world, that's like their biggest fear. Like... (laughs) People would rather, I think they said they'd rather die than do public speaking. So it's, it's going to be uncomfortable at first, but if it's something you care about, you'll care enough to do the necessary work to make it your job. Yeah. I think it's public speaking, drowning and heights or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's no joke, man. It's like, it's a, it's fearful, but that what's, that's what makes it so rewarding when you can conquer that challenge. It's, it's what keeps us comics coming back night after night. Oh, trivia for you. I just found out from 23 and me that there's a genetic marker for stage fright. What? Yes. I was surprised what? Too. That, that you, if you have this marker, you are more likely to be uncomfortable with public speaking than if you don't. I was like, wow whoa they're going deep on that they're like was that like a caveman that stood on a rock and fell like your great 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 grandfather fell off a rock and now you're afraid to stand on stage i don't don't know genetic yeah (laughs) awesome this has been fun where can people find you oh man the best place to find me personally and if you want to book me or whatnot or check out my schedule, joelbyerscomedy.com is going to be the best place. It's a good resource for my classes, how you can connect with me if you want to work together or you just want to learn more about me. I have a blog on there as well. And my podcast is hotbreathpodcast.com. There's also a blog on there. There's all my episodes and additional resources and merch and things like that. But really just, Connect with me on any of those. I am very responsive and I love hearing from people and just what they've learned from connecting. Well, fantastic. And I think you have an online course, right? I have an online podcasting course. Yes. Yeah. I I actually just released one with Frequency Media. They're a podcast production company here in Atlanta who's done work with like Coca-Cola and Apple. And we just teamed up to create like a, it's like a comic, it's, it's informative, but it's also super funny. We made it almost like sketch comedy. So you'll really, it has fun graphics and it has a workbook that comes along with it. So that would be learn.frequency.com if you want to sign up for that. But reach out with any questions. I'm, I love helping people and 
connecting with people and let's connect. Awesome. And what do you have coming up next? I'll be having dinner with my wife. That's going to be next. Um, <laughs> I mean, to see me live, it's all it's all on my website, joelbyerscomedy.com. But I, like you said, awesome. podcasting is a lot of work. I'm releasing a new one every Monday. So I'll be, you know, working to book an interview and edit and find another interview and post and repeat. It's a labor of love. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, man. thanks for having me, Eric. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Hey, are you a podcaster or wannabe podcaster? The Mid-Atlantic Podcast Conference is the place to be September 6th and 7th in Atlantic City, New Jersey. It's by podcasters for podcasters with a focus on creativity, community building, and turning your podcast into your business. Learn more at midatlanticpodcast.com. Welcome to Growth Mindset University. My name is Jordan Paris, 21-year-old author and host of this show. And with this show, you and I will embark on a journey to learn the things that we should have learned in school but did not, so that we may take control of our lives while fulfilling our vision of success. Each episode will feature a brand new lesson, and now it's time for today's lesson. So put your thinking cap on because school is now in session.